Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What we have here in verse 7 is really a bit of a double take on what we studied last week. If you weren't here again, um, this is basically part two of part one for the introduction to the book of Ephesians, which we kicked off. And I've titled this introduction, again, over two weeks, Uh, the triune work of God in salvation from eternity to eternity. And that is a mouthful, but if you're here last week, you recall that this is a brain load of information that's getting thrown at us here in the very opening words of the book of Ephesians. This is quite a title for quite a passage. Last week, we looked at the Father's work in salvation, verses 3 through 6. We've sectioned this introduction the uh, trying work of God in salvation from eternity to eternity, sectioned it into three parts based on each person of the Trinity. The Father's work in salvation we looked at last week and it had a lot of fun, contentious uh, stuff there to do with election and predestination. This week we're going to look at the two other persons of the Trinity, the Son's work in salvation, verses 7 through 12, and the Spirit's work of salvation, verses 13 through 14. But in saying that this is a double-take, Uh, This is not a superfluous double-take. We're not going back for the sake of it. Paul is not just repeating himself here in verse 7 for no good reason. He's reinforcing for us the Father's work in salvation in the provision of these spiritual blessings. Verse 3, remember verse 3 if you were here last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly Places. That verse was the beginning of the longest sentence in the entire Bible. Now, you might be thinking, are you kidding me? I can see a few full stops and commas in here. This is in the Greek. It is the longest sentence in the original language of the Bible. 202 words long. Uh, Paul is just beaming between verses 13 and verses 3 to 14. He is just beaming praise. Blessed be the blessed blesser who has blessed us with blessings forevermore. Amen. Blessed, blessed, blessed. That is the couch. That is the umbrella. That is any other analogy you want to bundle all of the stuff into that we're looking at here. It is blessing. It is worship. It is praise. It is extolling the God of our salvation. That was last week, the Father's work in election that we looked at. That is how he has blessed us. Election, verse 4. Predestination, verse 5. Adoption, verse 5. And that led to that first of three refrains. Father, Son, Spirit, three persons involved in salvation. Three refrains to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. It's the crescendo of every one of these people working for our salvation. So that's where we landed last week. Verse 6, the crescendo to his glorious grace. Here in verse 7, Paul helps us to see how the Father's plan, blueprint, if you want to think of it like that, a, a building term, his architectural drawings, how they were put into practice or constructed by the work of the Son, the Builder. And this time, you'll be pleased to know, we're not going to, you know, in this double take, we're not going to be going back to mind-bending 
eternity to before the foundation of the world. Some of you, I can hear a sigh of relief. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. We're not going back to before the foundation of the world. We're going back to the son's work in the world, not to eternity, to history. This is a new spiritual blessing that we have here, verse 7. Redemption. Add that down if you're counting up the spiritual blessings here that are falling out from verse 3. Redemption. We are blessed by the Father's election and we are also blessed by the Son's redemption. So before we go any further, let's try and understand the meaning of this word redemption. Uh, The word redemption, it's used 10 times in the New Testament, this particular word. And of those occurrences, two of them are right here in the book, uh, sorry, three of them are in the book of Ephesians. Two of them are right here in our particular passage, uh, verse 7, and again we'll see it in verse 14. In its simplest, this word redemption, it means to be set free, to deliver, to release by payment. So the question then comes, where is this redemption? What, you know, what's going on to warrant it? What is this payment? And what are, why are we released? You know, what is it that we're released from? Paul answers all of these questions and more as we dive in here to verse 7 and following. So let's take a quick look. First, where is this redemption? Verse 7, in him we are redeemed. What I'm about to do here, if you're like into the geeky greeky, uh, we're going to be seeing how that phrase, we have redemption, is modified in three different ways. First, it's modified by in him. We are redeemed in him. Who's the him? Verse 6, let's just go right back. Look at our context. Remember, this is uh, verses were put in like over a thousand years after the New Testament and in the original Greek there were no full stops here. So let's just go back, let's continue to read this as though it was one protracted sentence like it was. Who is the hymn? Verse 6, the beloved. Who is? Christ Jesus, verse 1. We didn't have time to explore this last week, this idea of Christ being the beloved, but I really want you to take note of something here um, This was such a eureka moment for me. Anyone in Bible study knows I have these eureka moments and I talk about them and everyone gets bored pretty quick because I just am so excited. But, you know, preaching is so much fun. You get to get up here and you get to kind of externalise, which is good for somebody like me. Um, Remember last week how we considered, again, the mind-bending phrase before the foundation of the world, verse 4. We looked at other New Testament occurrences of that phrase to try and understand what that meant. And amongst other things, we saw that it clearly meant that Christ the Father was with Christ was with the Father before the foundation of the world. That much is undeniable, you know. Christ was there with the Father before the foundation of the world. We saw that John 17, 24, Matthew 24, 34, Revelation 13. Well, here in verse 6, Christ is identified as the beloved. That is the one who is loved. Loved by who? By the Father. And where's the Father? As we saw last week, he inhabits eternity. In other words, the beloved is Christ, the one loved by the Father from all eternity. Now think about that as we come here to verse 7. In him, Christ, the one loved by the Father from all eternity, we have redemption. This verse is telling us that we have something in history That is ultimately from eternity. Our redemption is rooted in the love of the Father for his Son from all of eternity. Now think about that love, right? Don't think too hard because it's going to hurt. But just think about that love. If love 
is, if this love is from eternity, then by its very nature, it's eternal, it's boundless, it's infinite, it's perfectly given, it's perfectly received, it's complete, and yet it's continuing, it's just cyclical, it's infinite, it's ongoing. In that love, we have redemption. In that inner relational dynamic of the Trinity, we have redemption. It's like the love of God is so pristine, so perfect, it has overflown from the Godhead and spilled out into creation and swept us all up. It's high and holy theology that we're looking at here, friends. And that's why we're getting ready for these words like lavish and rich in a moment. This is lavish, this is rich, precisely because it is rooted in an overflow from all eternity in the infinite, perfect, complete and continuing love of the triune Godhead himself. Welcome to church, everyone. (laughs) We don't mince our biblical meat, we just chew it. This is why Paul is blessing God here. The more I read the Apostle Paul, you know, the more I just see how charismatic this trained rabbi is. Uh, He's just always writing in a worshipful kind of style. You know, it's just overflowing with worship. He just bursts out into praise like we see here, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, because he can't help himself. He's feeling what he writes. If we don't feel what Paul is telling us here, I I think we're out of touch with what he's saying. Father, I just pray that doxology, that liturgical praise of you would be well within our hearts right now, like welling up as we read this. Amen. Verse 7, in him, the beloved, we have redemption. All right, we're just just getting into this and we've already gone to eternity. Now we're back in history, so it's okay. Who's the we? Who's the we? Who are the we that have redemption? The we refers back to those in the beloved, verse 6, which traces back to verse 1, saints faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the clear logic of the text. We explored that last week. Let me say that a little bit more forcefully and in the negative just to make it very clear. Verse 7 is not talking about everyone in the world. The spiritual blessing, verse 3, of redemption, verse 7, is not something that unbelievers have. When we do missions, when we do evangelism, Uh, redemption is what we are offering people. It's what we're calling them and inviting them to come and to have. And that's a free offer, you know, come to the waters and drink without money, without price. Redemption is free and it's available to all, but not all have it. That's why we're called to go out and to make disciples of every nation, right? Only we, the saints, the elect, the predestined, the adopted, those who hear and believe, we'll get to in a moment, are the redeemed. And if that sounds a little like self-centered, then we just have to go back and listen to last week and understand what Paul's saying here because any sense of conceitedness here really misses the gospel, what Paul's saying, and pretty much everything else in the Bible. Let's not bring our bad attitudes into the Scripture here. In him we are redeemed through his blood, second modifier. Again, remember that word redemption here. It, It means to be set free or released with payment. Well, Here's the payment aspect, right? Release comes through the payment of blood, the blood of the one we are in, the beloved, Christ. Now, we aren't talking here about Red Cross donations. (laughs) Biblically speaking, 
Blood is a reference to life. Leviticus 17, 11. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews tells us. So if you're taking notes, just write life in brackets next to this word, blood. But, but why is redemption so expensive that it costs the life of the one from eternity who was with the Father? Well, Paul tells us right here, redemption costs so much because it is released by payment and that release, that payment, involves the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses is a descriptive word for sin that it implies a deliberate crossing over the will and the word of God. Trespass, you know, crossing the Rubicon. As soon as um, Caesar did that, it was civil war in Rome. You cross over, there's an intention there and it is irreversible in its consequences. So, and, and don't miss this then. Within the idea of redemption is the reality that guilt is due. That is implicit. That is within this definition of redemption. Let me say that again. Within redemption is the implicit reality that guilt is due. You don't need forgiveness if you haven't incurred guilt, right? If there's nothing to forgive. But if you're a Christian, if you are redeemed by him, then implicit in your claim to identify as a one of Christ is your acknowledgement of guilt before God because that's what redemption is. It's forgiveness from the guilt of treacherous sin against God, our sin against God. I think this is why Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark were evangelistic. Mark 2, repent and believe the good news. Repentance is necessary. It is the necessary accompaniment for redemption. It doesn't contribute to the work of God in salvation, but it is the necessary response for anyone seeking salvation. Otherwise, why would they think they need to be saved if they didn't? You know what I'm saying? Repentance is not the goal to which we aspire as Christians. It is definitional of who we are, the redeemed, part and parcel. And this is what keeps us humble, by the way. Successes don't need to go to our heads because at every moment of every single day we realise we are saved by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to that cross I cling. But just as it keeps us humble, it keeps us hopeful because the failures don't need to go to our hearts. We aren't defined by our lowest moment. This is like gospel equilibrium. There's a title for a book. It's just balancing of the Christian life. In fact, um, I'm going to do it. We have a little bit of time. Let me just do this. Let me take you from the rabbinic scholar of Paul to the fisherman named Peter. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, we read these words. You were ransomed. That's very closely associated with this idea of redemption as released by payment. Right? You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So where Paul is saying that we are redeemed, which means we are released and we are freed from our trespasses, Peter is adding another dimension here. If you're a Christian, today done, you are redeemed. Paul is telling you that. This is what we call justification in the, in the language of Romans. You are regenerated. You are saved from your sins. They are forgiven. Don't question it. It's done. Peter is adding something special here. He's saying we are freed, not from the punishment of our sins, but also, not only that, but also the futile ways of sin. This is a way of life. We are freed from that way of life. 
the futility of our trespasses, the pointlessness, the, the uselessness of sin in our lives. We are freed from that. When I, more than any other truth in the New Testament, this has been the biggest one for me as a person, personally speaking. I am released today, not just from the guilt of sins, which can seem a little abstract. It's like, okay, yep. But the futility of sin I'm released from, and you better believe that I say that in my life every single day, every day I wake up. I give it to the Lord, and I uh, just, you know, I'm not great at this Christian thing, right? I, I try, talk to my wife, it's very clear. But the wastefulness, the pointlessness, the emptiness of sin is something that we war with, and we'll see that in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 as we start strapping on some armour. Um, but we can get rid of that. You, you have the power to say no when you're tempted. This is not your nature. Pigs eat trash. That's not your nature. If you knew what you are eating, you'd walk away. You'd vomit as well. This is a new nature. We have a new nature. Walk in it, talk in it, believe it, own it. You are redeemed not only from the curse of the sin in your life but also the futile ways that come along with that. Jesus has come that we may have life and have it to the full. That's a promise now, John 10.10. Own it. Okay, Paul says here, back to Paul, back to the rabbinic scholar, Ephesians. Paul says here, verse 7, in him, that's the scope of redemption. Those who are released, in him we are redeemed. And he says through his blood, that's the means of redemption, the payment for our release from sin and futility. He continues here, verses 7 through to 9. We have redemption according to the riches of his grace. You know, if redemption is this idea of release by payment, then you can start to appreciate some of the economic terms Paul is using here in this section. Riches of his grace, verse 7. Inheritance, verse 11 and 14. Possession, verse 14. It's transactional language because that's the analogy he's using to talk about our redemption. We'll explore the idea of inheritance and possession in a moment. But for now, why does Paul add this point about grace? I think he adds it here to connect the son's work with the Father's work in salvation, that crescendo of praise in verse 6, with the riches of God's grace, praising the, you know, the, the Father for his work in eternity. He's connecting that grace here in verse 7 with the Son. To unpack this and make it real clear, I'm going to steal a little bit of, I think it's John Coe's limelight in a couple of weeks when he preaches on Ephesians 2, 4-7. Paul says this, Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy, same language, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up, verse 6, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Good luck going through that, John, in your allotted time. <laughs> that right there is the key phrase. Right there at the end, verse 7, is the key phrase as it relates back to you to chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 6 and 1, 7. The whole goal, the whole reason why God is showing mercy, why he's so rich in mercy, why he, his love is so great towards us, why he extends grace towards us, why he has raised us up, why he seated us in, with him in the heavenly places. It, it's to sh- The whole purpose of all of that is to show us something. That's what Paul's saying. It's to show us something. It's to show us what? His riches, the immeasurable riches with which we have been blessed. Verse 3. That's what Paul is saying here again back in chapter 1. 
verses now 8. We have redemption according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. What will? What purpose? That will and purpose of the Father from all eternity. Verse 5. Which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. The riches of God's grace, verse 7, are lavished, caused to abound upon us, verse 8, in the revelation of what was previously a mystery hidden within the eternal Father heart of God, his will, namely that we are adopted children. Verse 5, the plan of the Father is lavished, That plan we looked at last week, the Father's work in salvation, his plan, the blueprint, it is lavished, it is caused to abound upon us in this redemptive work of his son and it is a revelation of God, his nature, the love again that he has within himself. I said last week that God is so utterly beyond us in every conceivable sense that we should not expect to fully grasp him in his pure, infinite, perfect essence. If you have, you've just committed blasphemy, repent. (laughs) You cannot fit God into a test tube, you cannot put him into your brain. That's why we worship him. But I also said that does not make us agnostics, you know, that we don't know or that we're up a paddle without a creek, without any knowledge of God. Because despite our creaturely shortcomings, God has revealed himself to us. He is there and he is not silent, said Francis Schaeffer. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said Jesus to Philip. The person of Jesus in his, in his person bespeaks the fullness of deity, Colossians 2.9. And so does his work of redemption, his person and his work. Something immeasurable is seen by, is known by, is revealed to us in the Father's kindness extended towards us in Christ Jesus. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. We've just got to to start singing in the middle of sermons here, guys. Just hang out here for a second with me as well, please, and try and grasp this idea of eternity overflowing into history. It's mind-boggling. Hold on. Christ Jesus, the one who was with God before the foundation of the world because he was God, John 1, 1 to 3, that God, he's before all things. And in him all things hold together, Hebrews 1.3. That includes that galaxy cluster of smack 0723 that we talked about last week, all 4.24 billion light years away, right? That was just published in June 2022 of this year. That God is before all of that. He holds it all together. Every single atom, he holds it all together. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Romans 11. It is there. He holds it all together. That almighty God became that he was made flesh and blood because only by becoming flesh and blood could he die, Hebrews 2. And that led to this. This is a revelation of the eternal one in history. It sounds foolish to some people, but when you think about it, it's praiseworthy. I don't even know what else to say. Just look. That should shock us. 
He who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself and came in the form of a person. And if that wasn't enough, he, he, he died. <laughs> the immeasurable was willingly measured by your worst days and by my worst days. That's a revelation. That tells us something. We see something. We know something about God's heart, that inner dynamic of the Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son that overflows and does that tells us something about who it is that we worship here. You see? This is a window into the secret things of the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Those secret things of the Lord belong to him, but he has brought us in, into the quietness of our hearts, those hearts that he changes from stone to flesh because it is there in the heart that we have eternity written, Ecclesiastes 3.11. There's little space in there for this God. That's why people are searching and tracing meaning and purpose in all sorts of places, even those with whom we would morally disagree with so much are pursuing something that is inherently good. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to realise that in some sort of relational context. But the question is whether or not that is it or that is it or is that it. This helps us do evangelism too, by the way, because it softens us towards those who know a truth but it's suppressed, Romans 1. That's why we come to them with this offer of redemption, free offer of redemption. The whole goal of the triune work of God in salvation is to help us understand, to help us have insight as to why we hunger and thirst for that which nothing in this world can satisfy because we were made for something more. Okay, we are in him, we are saved through his blood, the riches of his grace. Here, verse 9, according to his purpose, we have redemption according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul's still going. You might be thinking, can't take any more of this. Hold on, (laughs) Paul's still going. What's this all about here in verse 10? Well, just as the Father's work in salvation was entirely his initiative, we we tried to beat that drum last week, so the Son's work in salvation is entirely his initiative. In Christ we are redeemed. Through Christ his blood we are redeemed. By Christ his lavish, immeasurable grace we are redeemed. In, through, by, now Paul tells us we are redeemed for Christ. Verse 10. His, the Father's, purpose set forth in Christ, verse 9, was as a plan, verse 10. This phrase, as a plan, it it means administration. That that will be in your NASB if you have that translation in front of you. Uh, It might read dispensation if you have an older version that goes back to the Latin Vulgate. It refers to the, the Father's activity of administering time, the fullness of the times. Now, this is just classic Paul, high and hard theology that we have little time to work through here. But we get a clue as to what this fullness of the time means in Romans 13, 9 to 10, because that is the only other place in the entire New Testament where things are said to be united or summed up in Christ. So when we look there, we read in Romans 13, 9, these words, for the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, when the law is filled up with full and perfect obedience, which is what happened with Christ in his incarnation, the sum that you get at the end of all of that, if you want to be mathematical, 
It is love. Summing up, unity is fullness. It is completeness. So when we look here at Ephesians 1 and Paul talking about Christ now uniting all things, he seems to be saying that Christ is the fullness of the times. Everything in every age finds their ultimate meaning in him. Now, there's been many ages since the dawn of human civilization. You know, Eden, just looking at the biblical timeline here, you've got Eden, you've got patriarchal rule, you've got the church age within which we now live. Um, You've got the millennial reign of Christ coming in the future and there's a lot more that I've breezed over. There are different eras or epochs or administrations of God's timing. You see this in Hebrews chapter 1 if you wanted to make a note of that. Paul is saying when all of these are said and done, they find their sum, the meaning for why they have come to pass in the way in which they have in, through, by and for Christ. It's a lot of talk again these days about the meaning of life but If that's a question, we get a hint. might have something to do with Christ. I mean, we just learnt from the very structure of this passage that we're studying here that the saints are connected with Christ in every single moment. Did you notice that? From verse 1 right through to verse 14, you do not get a single verse where the saints are not talked about in connection with Christ. Verse 1, we the saints are the faithful in Christ. Verse 2, we have grace and peace from Christ. Verse 3, the Father blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, the Father chose us in Christ. Verse 5, the Father predestined us to adoption through Christ. Verse 6, the Father blessed us in the beloved, that is Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption. Verse 8, Christ has lavished his grace upon us. Verse 9, the purpose of God in history is made known to us in Christ. Verse 10, everything is summed up in Christ. Verse 11, we have an inheritance in Christ. Verse 12, we hope in Christ. Verse 13, we've heard the gospel of salvation in Christ. Verse 14, we will one day possess our inheritance in Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. The triune work of God in salvation from eternity to eternity is put into effect in, through, by, and for, J-E-S-U-S, Yes, Christ, it's here. And let me just say, you know, if this is not evidence, because it's not explicit, the the, the whole um, divinity of Christ in the book of Ephesians. Some commentators have played with that question, is it really here? If this is not an implicit argument for the divinity of Christ, I don't know what is. In fact, I would submit to you this is actually blasphemy for Paul to be talking about Christ in such a way. If, if Christ were a created being, then to speak with such preeminence, and that is the word, Colossians 1.18, in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. To speak about created things with such preeminence as the Apostle Paul does, I think would be blasphemy unless, of course, Christ was indeed one in nature with God. In that case, it wouldn't be blasphemy. It would be blessing. And that's what Paul is doing here. So it seems to work. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain and he has washed it white as snow. How many songs have come out of this passage? It's probably actually Psalm 51, but the point is this all works together. In Christ alone my hope is found. We could keep going, I won't. Because, you know, he is not a way. He is not a truth. He is not a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Another defeater verse against universal salvation, by the way. If everyone is deemed, redeemed apart from any relationship with him, apart from any effect of his blood upon their lives, his grace, he who is the sum of all things, if people can have a theology that says that they can be redeemed apart from Christ, then why bother with Christ is my question. 
Why call the gospel good news? It's just news. What's good about it? I think universalism makes the cross of our Lord redundant and impoverishes what Paul calls rich. The Son's work in salvation is our redemption in, through, by and for Christ. It's all about him. It's all about him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And to make this doubly clear, Paul adds these next two verses. Verses 11 and 12. In him, Christ Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why does he add this little bit here? seems to be a nice finish that we just had, the sum of all things in Christ. Why does he tag this on here? Well, remember last week how we saw that the Father's predestination to adoption, verse 5, it really brought further clarity to the election to holiness in verse 4. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in verses 11 and 12. I think he's bringing more clarity to what we just studied in verses 7 through 10 concerning our redemption. I think Paul is saying here, we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Because of the redemption we've just talked about. How do we obtain this inheritance? Well, Paul tells us, by predestination. That should be getting our brains to go back to last week, to verse 5. According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Paul is showing us how the Father's work in salvation is connected to the Son's work in salvation inasmuch as the adoption that we receive through the Father's election and predestination correspond to the inheritance we receive through the Son's redemption. It's such a big statement. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Let me just use an analogy. Um, My parents have talked to me about their will uh, and the inheritance that we'll receive as children. They didn't have to do that, but they chose to, right, because they love us and that was their decision to do that. They haven't had this conversation uh, with, with Mick, I haven't invited Mick over to have a conversation with him about their inheritance, you know. (laughs) Actually, right. Well, then we need to talk. Um, Why didn't they do that? Because my sisters and I, we're their children. Uh, This connection between family members, it establishes something. I don't want to say entitlement because it's a blessing, but it establishes the right for the parents to kind of give that on to their children should they choose. Well, the Father's work in salvation, it brings us into the, f- the family of God, right? That's adoption. The Son's work in salvation, it brings that inheritance along. You see, we, we just cannot divorce the Father's work in salvation from the Son's work in salvation. It's all connected. We cannot, you know, help but join Paul here in verse 12 for making that clear and bringing it out just to make sure we understood. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Father's work, son's work. Finally, let's take a look at the Spirit's work in salvation. I might even finish on time. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot in here again, (laughs) but for the sake of time, I'm going to be selective. Thus far, we have seen the unmistakable initiative of the Father and the Son in salvation. Here, as it concerns the Spirit's work in salvation, we're given understanding as to how God's work in salvation is a 
appropriated or taken in to the life of the believer, to the life of a Christian, to the life of one who is redeemed. A saint, verse 1. Paul says, you, saints, hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The God, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your salvation, this is the appropriation, this is the objective reality made come alive in you, this subject, the individual. You know, this is that thing we're talking about here. You hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. That's not all we do here, by the way. Paul says next verse, uh, continuing here, we believed in him and insofar as belief and faith are connected, uh, again, this takes us right back to verse 1, saints faithful in believing in Christ Jesus. Hear and believe. This is what we do. These are the things that we actively do as Christians. Some people get very concerned at the suggestion that we do anything at all, lest we contribute in some sense to the spiritual blessings, verse 3, that God has bestowed upon us, election, redemption, and so on. Uh, And honestly, I get that. I truly do understand that. Salvation, as I have been beating this drum, is in every single instance an initiative of God. There's no question in my mind about that. But at the same time, I think that the suggestion of hearing and believing are considered works contributing to that work of God goes just a little too far. I don't think hearing and believing are, you know, reasons for our salvation. They're responses to salvation. I think that works with the way we've been called to do missions and evangelism and to preach the gospel and Jesus himself, Mark 2, repent and believe. That's a question that's that's begging for a response, for an answer. Salvation is a triune work of God which we hear about. It's something that we believe in. Think about your own life, right? I think this is validated in the testimonies of Tony that we heard not long ago, but each of us. John 1, 12 to 13, to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not everyone who hears listens. Not everyone who has eyes sees. Matthew 13, 14 to 38, another defeater verse against universalism. All of this will be unpacked in greater detail in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. Good luck, John, again, looking at that one in your time. (laughs) Uh, And I don't want to take away from John, but we, we just need to quickly look at this. Sorry, John, for the sake of trying to understand what it is I think Paul is saying here to us. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, the great verse of salvation. John will improve upon my mistakes in the next couple of weeks. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. My very quick, oh, it's too quick, but my very quick understanding of this verse is that grace is the means the instrument causing, expressing, lavishing salvation to us. Only on the basis of grace are we delivered from our desperate, deathly state of sin, Ephesians 2.1. But whereas grace is the cause of salvation being extended to us, faith is the subjective means, sorry for these words, I don't know what else to say, faith is the subjective means through which We take in, we appropriate that grace, that kindness, Ephesians 2.7, of God, such that we can say, Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption. Maybe go back and listen to that online. (laughs) Grace is the 
cause of salvation being extended to us. Faith is the way we take that in. Does that work? Okay. So that we can then come back to Ephesians 1.7 and say, we have redemption. Okay. The divine work of salvation, in other words, is done. It's done. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. But we can be blessed by it through faith. And this way of understanding Ephesians 2.8 and 9, I think, and John, correct me, is important because it allows the death of Christ to be universal in its provision. I, I've, John, I was not going to mention any names, but I will do this. John Calvin himself says 1 John 2.2 is a very strong argument for universal atonement, that Jesus died for everyone. Unfortunately, after him, Synod of Theodore Beza, some of his best students took that to mean that Christ only died for some limited atonement, but Calvin himself didn't actually peddle that. Anyway, sorry, um, that's probably for like three people here. <laughs> um, back to Ephesians 1. The reason why I think that's so important is because it allows yeah, Christ's death to be potentially effective for everyone, so we can offer it freely, right? That's what I'm trying to say. Granted this then, <laughs> it is we who hear and believe that grace through faith. Now the question comes as to what is the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this? Verse 13. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What's happening here? What's this sealing? What's this all about? Let's, uh, let's play 20 questions. Five questions. Five questions only. Just kidding. Let's do five quick questions. Question number one, who is the sealer? We aren't actually told. If you take a look here, we're not told. All we know is that sealing occurs in him, in Christ. You know, we were sealed. It doesn't talk to us about who that was. But that being so, given that the Son is the one that we're in and that we're sealed with the Spirit, who is the missing member, I think there's a great case to be made even from the silence of this particular passage that the sealer is the unmentioned person of the Trinity, namely the Father. What this tells us then is that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our sealing. God the Father seals in the Son with the Spirit. And this, by the way, I think makes great sense of Trinitarian theology as the Spirit is spoken of both the Father and the Son. I also think this interpretation is confirmed by other passages such as 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. I really just think this makes it, this stops the question. It is God the Father who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also sealed us as God has sealed us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's all there, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. That's question one. Question two, who is sealed? Those in him, all the saints, all the Jews and Gentiles faithful in Christ Jesus, all the elect, all the predestined to adoption, all the redeemed, all who are hearing and believing. This is talking about Christians. Question three, who or what is the seal? It's the seal with the Holy Spirit of promise, we read there. The promised Holy Spirit. Promised why? Promised because he was promised all throughout the Old Testament. You just take your pick of verses. Joel 2, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 11, Zechariah 12, Luke 24, Acts 1, even Acts 2, right before Pentecost there. He's promised. He's the promised one. Question four, what does sealing mean? How are we to understand this sealing with the Holy Spirit in light of the Father's election and the Son's redemption. Well, there are a couple of places we could go to understand what sealing means, but let me just take you to one. And this is only one of many, but we've got a clock. Esther 8.8. 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. 
for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. I think that is the basic idea of Ephesians chapter 1 here. Something that is sealed in the name of a king or an authority cannot be revoked. A seal is a mark. It is a stamp of irrevocable certainty, validation, security, as good as guaranteed. We see here to use Paul's exact language. So if those in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, they are stamped with irrevocable certainty, validation, security of their inheritance. Verse 9, it is as good as guaranteed. And there's a segue here now to our last verse and our last question. What exactly is guaranteed? Question five, what is the purpose of this sealing? Let's just look here again at verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And there it is, last refrain, the crescendo of worship to the blessed blesser who has blessed us with spiritual blessings forevermore (laughs) to the praise of his glory. Amen. What is the purpose of this sealing? that we may have possession of our inheritance. What is our inheritance? It's what Paul clarified for us in verses 11 and 12 concerning verses 7 to 10, namely our redemption. In, through, by, for Christ. Now, your translation may not have that word redemption in verse 14. It doesn't here in the ESV that I'm speaking from, uh, but it is there in the original It is that exact same word from verse 7 is there in verse 14. The NASB has a go at putting it in there. It's a little awkward. That's why I didn't use it in the ESV. But let me just read the NASB for you. Verse 14, who has given you as a pledge, the promised Holy Spirit, who has given you as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You can see, again, that's pretty clunky, but redemption is there in verse 14. Why is this significant? Well, it should take our brains immediately back to verse 7 when you see a word that you want to connect like that. And there, when we studied verse 7, we unpacked the meaning of the word redemption insofar as it meant to set free, to release by payment. And that release was from our sins. We are forgiven. Jesus played with his life, blood, to forgive us from our sins. And that is real in an instant. Remember the thief on the cross? It was real in an instant. Redemption is a present reality for Christians. That's true. Verse 7, it's not a question. But here in verse 14, Paul is adding to our understanding of this. He's not taking back. He's not confusing. He's adding to. He's clarifying. He's completing. Redemption is a present reality, verse 7, but it is also a future reality, verse 14. Something guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, Paul is going to make this same point. So like, if you've got a lot of questions, hang around here for the next several months. Hopefully we'll get through them. Verse 40 of chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That is not today, that is a future day. It's what Jesus spoke about in Luke 21, 28 when he said, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That day is not today, it is coming, it is in the future. Paul is telling us here that this is not as good as it gets, guys, not as good as it gets. The day is coming when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, 2 Corinthians 5, 4-5. 
Jesus' work on the cross has more to give than just your personal forgiveness. He broke the curse of death, Hebrews 2. And the curse of death in Genesis 3 was a lot more than just people problems. The ground was cursed. Right? That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that all creation groans and we along with it. But then he says, this is so cool, right? Uh, we don't just grow randomly like, oh, we groan eagerly as we await, ready? The adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 23. I thought we were adopted by the Father back before the creation of the world, David. What are you trying to say? Yeah, I thought we were redeemed back in verse 7. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And yet they are going to be fully realised in the future as well. This actually starts to make sense of the Christian new life metaphor that is used all throughout the Testament. You grow in your maturity. You are saved, but you grow. There is a maturity in Ephesians 4. We're going to get there to the full measure of Christ. That's why it's, a di- it's dynamic. It's not static. It's a new life. You know, Jesus said it was finished on the cross on Good Friday, but it wasn't complete until he walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. He is the means and the model of our salvation, the firstborn from among the dead. The first, in other words, implies there's more to come. You know, this isn't confusion, it's completion, it's consummation. And it dovetails perfectly back here to what we've studied in verse 7. There we considered redemption as released by payment. Now Paul is telling us the implications of that payment. When you buy something, what happens? You own it, right? If you take it out of the shop when you haven't purchased it, you get in trouble. When you buy it, you take it out of the shop, it's yours. And if somebody else takes it off you, they get in trouble. It becomes your possession. It's something that you own. A Christian is a person released from sin and death by the payment of Jesus' lifeblood. He owns you. And if that's a problem, we probably need to get to know him a little bit better. I remember somebody saying to me in North England, why on earth would I ever want to follow like a divine dictator like your God? And I said, whoever complained about a benevolent dictator, an all-good dictator? And he just kind of looked at me because I used a big word. Um, And the answer is no one because the world has never seen one, but it will. He bought us. We are his possession. Do you not know? You are not your own, for we were bought with a price. Glorify God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas to care for the church of God, elders, (laughs) which he obtained with his own blood. That word obtained is the verb form of the plural that we have here in Ephesians 1. What is the proof of the payment, the receipt, if you will, the validation, the guarantee of the purchase? It is the Holy Spirit. Like the sealing of a king's letter, like a guarantee that ensures that the terms of the agreement are not revoked, they bind the commitment, the guarantee, the guarantor, they bind the commitment, they ensure the security, they give confidence and the assurance of the purchase. And we know in this case, the purchase, the redemption, verse 7, it's done. It's not a question of if it's done or if it's efficacious in your life, it's done. And the Spirit is evidence of that in your life. God paid with himself and now he guarantees that payment with himself. He puts himself on the line at every every moment of our salvation. You know, in midweek Bible studies, um, 
This is something that's becoming clearer and clearer, I think, to us as a group, that God is faithful to his people because he's faithful to his word. He makes promises to people. And these people do some silly things, and yet he will honour his promises because he is faithful to his word. He puts himself on the line. He literally put his life on the line with Jesus Christ, and now he puts his reputation, if you will, his guarantee on the line with the Holy Spirit. And all of this is worked through the plan of the Father, so it's really through him as well. Every moment of your salvation is divine initiative by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're redeemed, you're irrevocably sealed. Be confident in this, says Paul to the Philippians. Not me, Paul. Be confident in this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it through to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How will he bring it through to completion? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. You can cash that into the biblical bank any day of the week. So here it is, folks. As the Father opens the door to his household in adoption before the foundation of the world, so the Son opens his arms in redemption through the blood of the cross and the Spirit opens his account in securing our inheritance unto the redemption of the possession to the praise of his triune glory. This is the triune work of God in salvation from eternity to eternity, from before the foundation of the world until the day of Jesus Christ. The Father's work in salvation is election. The Son's work in salvation is redemption. The Spirit's work in salvation is to guarantee the completion of these realities in your life. At every point, make no mistake, it is the divine initiative of the triune God. There it is, the triune work of God in salvation from eternity to eternity, a praiseworthy introduction to a magnificent letter that we're going to spend now months going through as a church. I'm excited to hear the, uh, the guys in line after me who's going to be teaching through this in the coming months, and I hope you are too, because remember, Ephesians is a book all about the church, the called out ones. And we have again called this series, Sit, Walk, Stand. We are to sit in these realities that we have just broken our minds with for the last two weeks. We sit in them, seated in the heavenlies. We walk in them, walk in a manner worthy of the conduct which you've been called. We walk in this triune work of God in salvation and we stand firm in this work of the triune God of our salvation. Sit, walk, stand. That's our series. That's Paul's introduction and that is my time. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, I am singing with the psalmist, not to us, not to us, but to your name we give glory. Not to us, not to us, but to your name we give glory. How blessed we are, O oh Lord, how blessed we are indeed to be blessed from the blessed blesser who has blessed us with spiritual blessings forevermore. Lord, you have chosen us, you have predestined us, you have adopted us, you have redeemed us, you have sealed us. Words that are wonderful to my ears now that I understand what it is you're telling me in Scripture. You have guaranteed this, that one day we are going to be rid of mortality and the rot of flesh and the futility of aimless wandering and we'll be clothed in your resurrected life. How rich, how lavish, how kind, how gracious, how loving you are. Not only in doing that, but then inviting us in to hear at your table of conversation about this work that you wrought in our lives, this mystery hidden from previous ages that is combining both Jew and Gentile into one people as it concerns the church. Father, we 
give you praise in concert with the Apostle Paul, at least I do, for who you are and for what you've done from eternity to eternity. And I just pray now, Lord God, that as we embark on this voyage through this magnificent prison letter written by a rabbinic scholar in shackles in Rome, that we as a church would be attentive to the truths of who we are as your people and what you call us to do individually and collectively. Father God, I pray that you would show us, that you would instruct us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us each in our own ways, in our own places, in our own spaces, at home, in the quietness of our own heads and hearts, what it is to sit in these triune truths of our salvation, what it is to walk in them, what it is to stand in them. Lord, we all come from different places. We all look different. We all sound different. We all speak different. We sometimes speak really quick and other times really slow. We all have unique idiosyncrasies that make us lovable and, you know, people with whom we learn patience. But, Father, we're all together one in this salvation, one blessing, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Jesus Christ, you will tell us in this book. And we're all one in that because of your oneness in Father, Son and Spirit that's worked from eternity through history and out the other end. Father, I pray for the truth of this unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. Despite whatever differences we may have in how we pass this unity, and I get that, right? This is higher stuff, and I understand and appreciate that there's differences. But, Father, we're united in you, in, the, in you, who's given yourself to us. <laughs> and I pray for the truth of this unity to soak into us as we move forward into these weeks and months and years ahead to keep us faithful to you and to finish the work that you have begun in our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.